Hello. Hello. Hello, and welcome to Grace Online. We're really excited for you to be able to receive an encouraging word from Scripture today. Because we know that God is already here, and He is ready to be with you. And let's get ready to hear today's message. When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place, because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said, and Judas, the traitor, was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again, he asked them, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. If you were looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those who you gave me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him first to Ananias, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jewish leaders that it would be good for one man to die for the people. Simon Peter and another disciple were following Jesus. Because this disciple was known to the high priest, he went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard. But Peter had to wait outside at the door. The other disciple, who was known to the high priest, came back, spoke to the servant girl on duty there, and brought Peter in. You aren't one of this man's disciples too, are you? She asked Peter. He replied, I am not. It was cold, and the servants and officials stood around a fire they had made to keep warm. Peter also was standing with them, warming himself. Meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. I have spoken openly to the world. Jesus replied, I always taught in synagogues or at the temple, where all the Jews came together. I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. When Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby slapped him in the face. Is this the way you answer the high priest? He demanded. If I said something wrong, Jesus replied, testify as to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? Then Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Meanwhile, Simon Peter was still standing there, warming himself. So they asked him, You are one of his disciples too, are you? He denied it, saying, I am not. One of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man. Then the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. By now, it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, they did not enter the palace, because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. So Pilate came out to them and asked, What charges are you bringing against this man? If he was not a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him over to you. Pilate said, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone, they objected. 
This took place to fulfill what Jesus had said about the kind of death he was going to die. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus, and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea? Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew? Pilate replied. Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it you have done? Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth? retorted Pilate. With this, he went out again to the Jews gathered around there and said, I find no basis for a charge against him. But it is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of the Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? They shouted back. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they slapped him in the face. Once more Pilate came out and said to the Jews gathered there, Look, I am bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here is the man. As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, Crucify! Crucify! But Pilate answered, You take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. The Jewish leaders insisted, We have a law, and according to that law he must die, because he claimed to be the Son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid and he went back inside the palace. Where do you come from? He asked Jesus. But Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me? Pilate said. Don't you realize I have power either to free you or crucify you? Jesus answered, You would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free. But the Jewish leaders kept shouting, If you let this man go! Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on each side, and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get this. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled that said, They divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. So this is what the soldiers did. Right out of the gate, the very first question that Pilate asked Jesus is this. Are you the king of the Jews? Decades ago, a few wise men who were following a star asked a similar question of a would-be monarch named Herod 
Where is the one born king of the Jews? So from Herod's halls to Pilate's headquarters, this question unites Jesus' birth and death. From the little town of Bethlehem to the holy city of Jerusalem, all of the signs given to us through miracles, healings, and teachings lead us right here. To this day, to this hour, behold our king. Behold the one who, when questioned by Pilate, answers cryptically, declaring, My kingdom is not of this world. Jesus' response is startling and provocative. It confuses Pilate because all he can see before him is an ordinary man, someone whom Pilate perceives to have found himself in the wrong place at the wrong time and having made enemies with the wrong group of people. Jesus looks like any other criminal who has been brought before him, and yet here stands one who speaks with authority, who talks about a strange kind of kingdom, one without defenses, one without competition, one without rivalry. This Jesus looks and sounds nothing like any king Pilate has ever witnessed before. And today, like Pilate, we consider, we question, what sort of king Jesus might be. But in order to appreciate what is happening here, we have to go back in time. Pilate asks Jesus if he is the king of the Jews, and so we have to go back in time to the days of Israel's first kings. And you'll recall, after wandering around in the desert for a generation, Israel had finally come into the land God promised them to their ancestor Abraham. But a little chaos and a few judges soon convinced Israel that they were only halfway home. To truly become a certifiable nation, a force to be reckoned with, to truly become a country to be taken seriously, the people believed they were sure they needed a king. After else, everyone else had a king. To be a respected nation, a legitimate power, you had to have a king. You can't have a kingdom without one. It's part of the title. It's part of the definition. It goes with the territory. So, to be just like all the other nations, to be just like her neighbors, Israel demanded to have a king too. Now, we've spent these last few weeks of our Lenten journey closely examining how this initially turned out for Israel. And over these last few weeks, we've witnessed both the sudden rise and tragic fall of Israel's very first king named Saul. And you'll recall, by all appearances to the Israelites, Saul had all the bona fides. Saul looked like the prototype for a king. He was tall, he was strong, he was handsome. But as we've learned, appearances can be deceiving. When tested, more than once, Saul's heart was found wanting. Time and again, Saul served his own interests at the expense of others, particularly the Lord's purposes. And each time Saul was given the opportunity to own the error of his ways, he either blamed someone else or dug in his heels and refused to admit he was wrong. After Holy Week, when we get back to 1 Samuel, the crown will pass to David and then much later to Solomon. In both their cases, as we'll later discover, despite a promising start, they'll fare no better than Saul as kings of Israel. Truth be told, all in all, in the long view of history, kingship in Israel didn't turn out very well for the people. Israel was thrown into countless wars, hypocritical worship, and lots of internal conflict because of their kings. 
Her only escape, Israel's only way to get out from under the dynasty of failed kings, was exile. Ironically, the Israelites had to lose everything in order to be set free from what they insisted they most wanted, what they were convinced they needed so badly. Israel's problem, from the very beginning, was her failure to recognize that God had promised to be her king, that the Lord already was her king. How many times? How many times had God provided, protected, and rescued the people? How often had God defined the relationship, affirmed the covenant, I am the Lord your God, and you are my people, and yet the people rejected the Lord as their king? And the truly surprising thing about this history lesson, the part that speaks to where we find ourselves with Pilate, is that God allowed himself to be rejected by the people. As we discovered early on in the book of 1 Samuel, the Lord doesn't force the issue in terms of his right to the throne of Israel. No, the Lord doesn't call down the thunder and lightning to demonstrate his sovereignty. The Lord doesn't engage in debate using the power of his word to bring the people to their knees. No, the Lord lets the people get what they want in order to learn the hard way what they need, or more pointedly, who they need. Who is their one and only king? And now, now, as God has come down in the flesh, in the person of Jesus Christ, now we see history repeating itself, don't we? As God in Christ once again shows himself before, before Pilate to be a king whose power isn't coercive. The Lord is not a king who forces himself upon those who belong to him. Once again, God in Christ proves himself to be a king who is willing to be deposed from the throne. He's willing to be rejected and humiliated, to be dishonored and shamed, to have his heart broken for the sake of our love once again, God in Christ willingly hands himself over, giving the people what they want, his very life, in order to reveal to them the hard way, through his death, what we all need, the forgiveness and healing that come by way of unconditional perfect love and selfless divine sacrifice. From start to finish, we discover that God in Christ is a king like no king we've ever heard of or seen. This is why Pilate has such a hard time figuring out who Jesus is. He asks the obvious question, are you the king of the Jews? And in a sense, he gets it right. Pilate's asking the right question, but he demonstrates he's not truly willing to embrace the answer. That's why Jesus puts the question back on Pilate and says, is that your own idea or did others talk to you about me? Right here, Jesus is asking the fundamental question of Pilate that we must all answer in our lifetime. In other words, who do you say that I am? We get the sense that Pilate wants to acknowledge Jesus as a king. His later assertion, you are a king then, pretty much reveals what he's thinking. But Jesus doesn't fit into the box that Pilate is used to. Jesus doesn't line up with Pilate's understanding of power and kingship, so it throws him. I mean, Pilate reigns. Pilate reigns as one whose power comes from the sword. He keeps the peace. He prevents division by extending an iron fist. Pilate maintains order. He holds his rivals at bay by flexing his muscles every once in a while. 
Challenge Pilate's authority, get out of line, and you will be silenced by force. Jesus, however, is not that kind of king. He refuses to rule by the sword. Instead of a fist made of iron, he extends his arms horizontal on the cross. Rather than flex his muscles to silence his critics, Jesus is pierced for their transgressions. Jesus is not a king of this world, a king whose power comes from the sword. And he redefines for Pilate and for us all what it means to be king when he once again reveals his mission. When he says, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. Back in the beginning, before the people even asked for a king, back with Moses, when the Lord knew that they would someday reject him, Way back then, God spelled out the central purpose of a king. It was written down that when Israel wanted to have a king, that king's main task, the practice which defined his role, was to write down the entirety of the Torah, the law, and to meditate upon it. You see, a king in God's eyes, a king made in God's image, was to be a king who was so immersed in the truth of God's word that he would rule in and through such truth. So what Jesus is saying to Pilate here is what God told the people all along. The sovereign plan, the divine decree, is telling the truth of God's word, pointing to it, living by it. Jesus is redefining kingship as a matter of testimony when he declares, I testify to the truth. And Pilate's response is classic and sadly all too familiar as he jadedly retorts, what is truth? Once again, Pilate doesn't know what to do with this Jesus. You see, for Pilate, what's true depends on who controls the information. What's true depends on the situation, who you're talking to, and what they want to hear. Hence, Pilate later asserts, do you refuse to speak to me? Don't you realize that I have the power either to free you or crucify you? Pilate's truth is a self-centered truth. It's the lie of sin masquerading as my truth or your truth rather than yielding before the truth of Christ. It's seeking to profit the whole world at the expense of one's soul. Pilate's truth is about pragmatism and expediency. Cut a deal to save your life, Jesus. Come on. Give a little to get a little. Say what I want to hear. Give the people what they're asking for and all of this can be over. We can all go home and call it a day. That's good conventional political wisdom, Jesus. That's how you get things done. That kind of truth will get you reelected, Jesus, rather than crucified. But Jesus is not that kind of king. Jesus is not about that kind of truth, the kind of truth that seeks to preserve one's own power no matter what the human cost. Jesus isn't that kind of king, that not kind of that kind of truth, the kind of truth that Jesus testifies to, that he gives his life for, is justice and mercy, compassion and forgiveness, love and grace. It's the kind of truth that can't just be paid lip service. It has to be practiced, no matter what the cost. It's the kind of truth that challenges the idea of living only for yourself by daring us to believe that you actually save your life by losing it. It's the kind of truth that sees true redemptive power as no greater love than in giving our life for another. 
It's the kind of truth that isn't always proven on paper, but is discovered and affirmed by living into it one step, one day at a time. It's the kind of truth that doesn't make things easier, but it sure sets things right. We have a name for these kinds of realities, these kinds of truths, inconvenient truths. They're inconvenient because they challenge our thinking. They convict our hearts. They rock the very foundations upon which we try to build our lives. Jesus stands before Pilate as the inconvenient truth. What Jesus is living for, what he's willing to die for, makes no sense to Pilate at all. All that Pilate can see in Jesus is shame, loss, and humiliation. Twice already, Pilate has stated Jesus' innocence. He wisely doesn't rush to judgment. Pilate takes his time in looking at all the angles. Deep down, he knows enough of the truth to recognize a great injustice is being orchestrated. Pilate makes no bones about confessing his reluctance, his apprehension in passing sentence here. From his dialogue with Jesus, it's obvious Pilate senses this is his moment of truth that there is more to this guiltless man than first meets the eye. At some conscious level, Pilate flirts. He dances on the edge of perceiving some divine revelation in all of this, a power and an authority unlike ever, any he has ever witnessed. Standing before Pilate is the very way, truth, and life is the pearl of great price that in a story Jesus once told is worth selling all one has in order to possess. And yet when push comes to, to shove, Pilate ends up choosing to exchange the truth for a lie. Sometimes inconvenient truths are so hard to swallow that they're just easier to ignore. And so Pilate tries to wash his hands of Jesus. He orders an innocent man to be abused and tortured in order to placate an angry mob. He becomes a slave to public opinion as the crowd's death sentence becomes his official edict. He sets free a known terrorist named Barabbas and condemns a righteous man to death. Pilate tries to wash his hands of all responsibility even as he is the one who passes sentence, who declares Jesus to be guilty. Inconvenient truths always become the first victims when you have the power of the sword. Some truths are better left nailed to the cross. My friends, at this stage in our journey to the cross, as we stare into the face of Jesus and behold our King, we need to see that we are more like Pilate than we care to admit. Like Pilate, we are intrigued by, but ultimately reject, royalty that sacrifices rather than wields power. We'd rather not face the inconvenient truth that tells us the way to life goes through the cross. From where we stand, the way of the cross is at best a tragic error, at worst an irrevocable mistake. I mean, seriously, outside of a moment of worship, a designated Sunday service, in our day-to-day -day lives, when we see anyone or anything that looks as sweaty, bloodied, and bruised as the one who hangs before us now, we don't bow down and pay homage. We, like the crowds, accusingly point and mockingly jeer, or we pretend we don't notice and cross the street and walk the other way. Like Pilate, we perceive truth not in a God who willingly suffers, 
but in a God who delivers, a God who delivers the success, the status, and the achievement we crave. We're fine with the God who hangs on the cross for our sake, but we're not as comfortable with the God who tells us to carry the cross and die to ourselves. We struggle to perceive any truth that can be found in failure, weakness, and humility. Faced with the complexity of life, we prefer the kind of truth that gets results, the kind of truth we can control. And so we imagine we should be eternally youthful, always healthy, continually prosperous, and consistently successful. We fancy we should be able to have it all, have everything, even as we deny there's enough to go around for everyone. Like Pilate, we want to wash our hands of this Jesus. We'll do anything to save ourselves. We'll play politics in lieu of being true to the faith. Like the crowds, we'll blasphemously declare, we have no king but Caesar, when Caesar is willing to give us what God refuses to endorse. And so, we lend our ears and we cast our votes for the kind of kings who promise to make our lives great again, who offer us a world without suffering or sacrifice, a world filled with pleasure without pain, and a world without death. We gladly endorse the kind of kings who assure us that we are the real victims and who will provide us with someone else to blame. And who's a better scapegoat? Who's a better scapegoat than God? Who's a better scapegoat than God when life isn't the way we want it, when things aren't going our way? Crucify him? Hell yes, better him than me. We too, like the Israelites, reject this kind of king. We reject Jesus as our one true king every time we reject the commission and commandment of his kingdom. Our tendency is to look at the cross from a distance. From a distance, we weep and we're saddened when we think of Jesus, our king, battered and bruised, agonizingly nailed to a tree. We weep and we moan. However, Good Friday means nothing. The cross to which we cling becomes nothing more than a religious trinket if we fail to recognize that we continue to crucify Christ every time we see a brother or sister in need and deny them help or worse, mock their pain through the privilege of our indifference. Beloved, let us save our tears for Jesus if we only have none for each other. Because the truth is not created in our image. We are fearfully and wonderfully made in the image of the one who is true. To deny the image of God in each other is to deny Christ, period. What is truth, asks Pilate. What is true anymore, we wonder. What is true anymore? After a long year of isolation and separation, after a long year of antagonism and vitriol, after a long year of all the carnage born of sickness and death, what is true? We only have to look up and see the truth. Battered and bruised, but not defeated. Willingly sacrificed, but refusing to be exchanged for a lie. Crucified and broken, but still stronger than any counter-assertion that can be made. The truth is, 
Our no of the cross becomes God's yes in Jesus Christ. Even when Israel rejects God as their king, even when Pilate tries to wash his hands of Jesus, even when we drift away, God is still king and Jesus still has a place for us in his kingdom. The truth is, Despite all our wanderings and wonderings, all our denials and betrayals, this God revealed in Christ says from the cross, Yes, you are mine, even if you can't see it. Even when you reject me, even when you forget me and find other kings, you are mine, and I will never leave you. I may be forsaken, but I will never forsake you. The truth is, in Christ This God always says yes. That's the gospel, beloved. That's grace. That's the nature of Christ's kingship. That's the truth of God's kingdom. That's what makes Good Friday good. Let us then take a long, hard look up at the cross and behold our king. Nailed to a cross to rescue us from the powers of darkness and sin, Sacrificial love that costs him everything but gives us all things. Let us embrace this inconvenient but saving truth of Jesus Christ. Let us approach the throne of grace and find crucified mercy to help us in our time of need. Behold our King who reigns over all creation with unconditional love, the God who so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son to us, this same Jesus who dies so that we might live now and forever. Amen. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there, and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby. He said to her, Woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished, and so the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. If you'd like more information about our church, please visit us online at gracehb.org.